Good morning, and grace and peace to you. And uh, if you were at all paying attention, I'm sure you noticed that our readings this morning all have a missional emphasis. We read, God be gracious to me, Psalm 67, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. And then again in Isaiah 49, I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And again, Matthew 9, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And there is a progression in our readings. First, there's a petition asking, the psalmist asking that the nations might know the salvation of God. Then an answer, Isaiah 49, Jesus is appointed as a light to the nations. And then lastly, there's another petition, Jesus telling his disciples to pray that workers might be sent into the harvest. And our preaching text this morning is the capstone upon all those readings. The risen and victorious Jesus says to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses even to the remotest part of the earth. So the progression is prayer, answer, and then again prayer, answer. Jesus is appointed as a light to the nations, as an answer to prayer, and then the disciples are sent out into the world as an answer to prayer. And we find ourselves, right, here and now, likely from Jerusalem, the remotest part of the earth. We find ourselves now um, caught up in that latest answer to prayer. You and I, our workers and witnesses, sent out to gather in the harvest. As the scripture says, Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So this morning, I want to zero in on really one word in our passage, and that is witness. Jesus says to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses. And surprisingly, that word witness stands very near the heart of the faith. And I want to consider three things. First, what witness tells us about salvation. Two, what it tells us about the church. And then three, what it tells us about our mission. So the agenda this morning is rather straightforward. It's witness in three keys, salvation, church, and mission. So let's begin with salvation. In our passage, the risen Jesus commissions his disciples, and he commissions them specifically as witnesses. Again, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses even to the remotest part of the earth. I want to talk about what it means to be a witness in just a minute. But first, I want to consider what it tells us about the nature of salvation. Now, by definition, a witness is someone who has seen something. It happened, they observed it, and therefore they're able to give testimony to confirm it. And that's the nature of the apostolic commission. The disciples had been witnesses to something. They observed something, and now they're being sent out to tell about it. So it's pretty straightforward. Now, what does that tell us about salvation? Well, in the scriptures, the most common word to refer to salvation is gospel. 
It's one of those words that so entered our vocabulary that it's almost lost its meaning. Well, what does it mean? Euangelion, the word in the Greek, simply means good news. In other words, what the disciples witnessed and what they're to tell the world is good news. Good news for all people. Now, being news, salvation, uh, that the, the fact that salvation is news, rather, this means that the gospel is about events that happened in history. It's good news. It's a report about things that happened, and therefore the gospel is about events that happened in history. It's not a philosophical system that is a timeless, a body rather of timeless truths, nor is the gospel a set of moral instructions, a system of rules and regulations. Very simply, the gospel is news. And it's an, it's an announcement, a report about what happened. Now, when something major happens, we usually turn on the news, and there is an on-the-scene reporter right, standing in front of the scene telling us what's going on. And as everyone is wondering what happened, as everyone's clamoring for the details, they're there on the ground to fill in the picture. Now, it's most likely bad news a shooting or an attack or something else. But the apostles are kind of like that. They're on-the-scene reporters, except it's good news rather than bad news. While the world was not looking, something good happened in Nazareth and Galilee and Jerusalem. And instead of people turning on their TVs to see what it is or checking their phones, the apostles are sent out into the world to tell them what happened. And the nature of their proclamation is simple. They're saying, this happened. These events took place. The apostles are witnesses. They're not philosophers or activists. They're telling us about historical events. So, the gospel is first and foremost news. It's first and foremost news. Now, why is this important? Right? Why do we need to lay this emphasis upon the fact that the gospel is news? Well, the first reason that it's important is because it reminds us that salvation has been completed. It happened while we were away doing other things. It's reported to us by the apostles after the fact. The decisive event in the history of the world has already taken place and what we're to do now is simply respond. And what this keeps us from doing is distorting the gospel and turning news into advice. The gospel is not a message about what we need to do to be saved. Rather, it's an announcement that salvation has come. It happened 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel. So it comes to us as news, and therefore we have to decide what to do with this news. Are we going to believe its report and reorient our lives around it, or are we simply going to dismiss it and go on as before? So the gospel is news, and when we lay the emphasis there, it keeps the message as news. 
And this leads to our second point. Because the gospel is news, it's public truth. Because the gospel is news, it's public truth. It's not true for her or for him, for some people as opposed to other people. The gospel is true for all. Now, what do I mean? Well, if something happens that is an event in human history, it's true for everyone, right? If something happens, it's true for everyone. So, for instance, uh, that spy balloon, whatever it was, was shot down last week. That's true for the entire world. It's an event that happened. Its meaning can be debated. It can even be ignored or denied, but it remains true nonetheless, right? It's a historical fact. It's true for all of us. And again, the gospel is something like that. It's not a private spiritual message. It concerns events that happened in history. Jesus Christ died and rose again. That's not some private message. That's historical reportage. And so the apostles, they come to us and they're not imparting some sort of secret knowledge. They're reporting the facts, right? And these facts have implications for the entire human race. I like the way Paul puts it toward the end of Acts, where he's standing before King Festus, who, as the Apostle Paul is telling him the gospel, thinks he's out of his mind. And so speaking to the king, the Apostle Paul says, The king knows about these matters. Um, None of these things escape his notice, For this has not been done in a corner. He says the king knows. These things happen and they haven't been done in a corner. In other words, he's saying that the gospel is public truth. It's not a private matter for the individual. This is something that happened in human history. Now, what am I after here? Right? Why emphasize that the gospel is news and therefore public truth? Well, what I'm countering is a bad habit in our society, which treats religion in general, and Christianity in particular, as a private matter. Now, what do I mean? Well, in our society, religion is driven out of the public sphere, right? Essentially, it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to like the way we organize our lives together. It's something that is it's personal. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of, you know, pure spiritual things. And so essentially, the gospel is a matter of personal consolation, of personal encouragement, of personal inspiration. You could put it this way. It's reduced to a hobby. A person is religious in the same sense that, you know, they would take up running or crafting or whatever they might want to do with their spare time. And so in our situation if we accept the definition that our society wants us to, the gospel, which is news about events that have taken place in history, it's uprooted from the public domain and it's tucked safely away in a private domain called religion. And it's fundamentally then a private and personal matter. The gospel is not news about what happened, public truth, but it's about something that can be true in your heart. It's stripped of all its radical and historical consequences, and it's reduced to a matter of the relation of the individual soul to God and that alone. Now, that's a serious distortion of the gospel, and it's not long before it becomes irrelevant. 
Jesus becomes simply another option. He becomes another item on the menu, another lifestyle choice, right? Another sort of personal thing in your life. So, so, so what do we say, right? What's the response here? What's the right way to approach it? Well, we might put it this way. The good news is not religion. It's not relationship. It's history. It's an announcement about actual events that have happened, not a private subjective message. It's not true for some. It's true for all. It can't be said in a, in a nice little box called religion where it's safe from the world. It touches upon every aspect of human existence. Jesus is not his or her personal Lord. He just simply is Lord of heaven and earth, of all things. It's public truth, not a private message. And that leads to the question, well, then what is the gospel? What is this good news? Well, first and foremost, the gospel is a message not about us, but about Jesus. It's the report of eyewitnesses that a man put to death by the Roman and Jewish authorities has been raised from the dead. And somehow this strange event is good news for all the world. And how so? Well, this man put to death and alive again, the apostles tell us, is now putting things right. As they would say, as the early church did say, Jesus is Lord. Now that's shorthand for the longer message, which says that Jesus defeated death. He's overcome all the forces that oppose God in the world, and he has begun a new creation. He is in the control room, and one day there will no longer be any death or mourning or pain or crying. The gospel is a message about Jesus, that he is Lord of heaven and earth and all of human history. Now, if we're honest, if we think about that claim, it is quite extravagant. A man raised from the dead in Jerusalem, crucified, has now become Lord of heaven and earth. It is a wild claim. We can understand Festus thinking that Paul was out of his mind, yet there is no historical reason not to credit the apostles' witness. When examined upon further detail, their words stack up. They would take witness to a whole new meaning and die as martyrs. That's the Greek word for witness. They would die as martyrs, witnessing with their very lives to the point of death, to the truth of this message. So as unlikely as it sounds, these things did happen. So the good news is about events that happened in history. Not a spiritual message, if we understand that simply as isolated from the rest of the world. It's good news about what happened. And the apostles are sent out as witnesses. And that brings us to our second point about the church. So we've talked about the nature of salvation, and now let's talk about the nature of the church. And what is the nature of the church? Well, it's a community of witness. Or better, if we want to be even more accurate, the church is a community of transmission. As the church, right, the, the people of God, we preserve and cherish and pass along 
the original eyewitness testimony from one generation to another. We are a community of witnesses and transmission. It's a bit like the church is a family, and the witness of the apostles is an heirloom, right? I'm sure some of you have a treasured, treasured possession or um, a tradition that's been handed down in your family. Now, as the church, it's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles that is ours. This is our treasured possession. Jesus' story is that heirloom handed down from generation to generation, cherished within the life of the church. Now, it all begins with the apostles, because they witnessed firsthand the events upon which the redemption of the world hangs. They were eyewitnesses. Now, why does this matter? Again, the gospel is history, and therefore the actual events as they happened matter, right? We, we, need, we need eyewitness testimony. And again, that's what the apostles are. They're on-the-scene reporters. Jesus appointed the twelve, the scripture tells us in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, so that they would be with him. They would be with him. So they could see everything that he was doing from beginning to end. The twelve were not geniuses, but apostles. They were not exceptionally gifted men. They were eyewitnesses. They had seen something. They were there when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, and the heavens opened, and the Spirit of God descended upon him, and the voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. They witnessed it. They were there when he healed the sick and when he raised the dead. They were there when he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught with authority. They witnessed his confrontations with the scribes and the priests. They watched as he went into the temple and tore it down because of what it had become. They saw him taken by the authorities, nailed to a cross, and then alive again on the third day. They stood by as he ascended into heaven. They were witnesses. And they were to tell the world, these things happened. Jesus died and he rose again and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father as Lord of heaven and earth. A little further in our passage, the qualifications for an apostle are laid out. Uh, there you go. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And so Peter stands up and calls for Judas's position to be filled. He says, Acts 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Jesus says, you are going to be my witnesses. The twelve are lacking one. Peter says, we need someone to fill the role. And what's required <clears throat> is that they would have been there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So in other words, it was not enough to have witnessed a miracle or two. An apostle had to be an eyewitness from the beginning. 
from Jesus' baptism, the very beginning of his ministry, until the day of his ascension, the very end of his earthly ministry. An apostle had to be there to see it all in order to, be te- in order to tell the story in full. Right Again, they would be the ones to tell the world, this is what happened. This is the story of Jesus, and here is what it means. Now, where does the church fit into this, right? Where, where do we fit into what we've been talking about? Well, we, as the church, are the people who have received the apostles' testimony, and we are the people who retell that testimony among ourselves again and again, right? Uh, so think about the introduction to the Gospel of Luke He kind of describes the process for us there. He says that he's compiled all these uh, stories and traditions about Jesus. He says, um, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So you think about how the church developed, and it's really simple. The apostles saw the story of Jesus. They went and told the story of Jesus as eyewitnesses. People believed And then these stories were handed down, and they served at the center of the church. And these stories were told and retold again and again and again. The church is the keeper of the apostles' original eyewitness testimony. It's been handed down from the very beginning, even to this day. And that's what we have in the New Testament, the gospel specifically. This is what happened. This is the way things went. And so before it's our responsibility to take this testimony out to the nations, it's our responsibility to witness to ourselves. Right? The same good news that we bear to the world is the same news that we must tell ourselves. And really, if we want to simplify things, this is why we gather as a church. This is why we assemble every Sunday morning. It's simply to retell the story. There are countless other stories out there that compete for our attention. And at church, we put them away and we tell the true story. We retell the story, those good events that happened so many years ago in Jerusalem. We do it in song. We do it in our readings. We do it in the preaching. We do it in the supper. We're retelling the story of Jesus. And I'll return to this in a moment, but there really is nothing else for the church to do. I have determined to know nothing, the Apostle Paul says, one of those witnesses to the risen Lord. He says, I've determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So here we are, right? So many years later, retelling and rehearsing the good news. It's what the church has always done, and it's what the church always will do. So, the good news is about events that have happened in history. The apostles are sent out as witnesses to tell what happened, and the church is the place where their testimony is told and retold. And that brings us at last to our mission. The great task before us in regard to our mission is to bear witness The great task for us is to carry forward the church's original reports. Jesus has died, 
and rose again. These things happened. It's public truth. And as Lord, he offers forgiveness and entrance into his kingdom. This is a message that's true for everyone. It's a message that matters for everyone. Therefore, we must speak with courage and love. Now, about our witness, I want to say two things. First is the necessity of our witness, and the second is the nature of our witness. Now, as we noted, the church simply is a witnessing community. It was brought into being to bear witness to the resurrection, to spread the good news to all peoples. Jesus says, wait till the gift of the Spirit comes, and then you will be my witnesses. And when the Spirit arrives in Acts chapter 2, the church is constituted. And then this process of witness begins there in Jerusalem, then into Samaria, and then through the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, to the furthest reaches of the earth. And we find ourselves, 2,000 years later, as the latest link in that chain, carrying forward the original witness. This is what they saw, and this is what we are telling you. This is what happened, and here is what it means. So witness is not optional for the church. It's a necessity. The church simply is a body of witness. Like John the Baptist, we are simply uh, the voice crying out in the wilderness. We are gesturing and pointing to the risen Lord. This is what happened. We're telling the world. In other words, the church must bear witness because it can do nothing else. By definition, right, a witness gives testimony to something other than itself. Otherwise, it's self-testimony and therefore it's false. The church has nothing of its own. It can only point. It can only bear witness. It can only say, this is what happened. It can only raise its voice and say to the world, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's really that simple, our mission. Anyone can point. Anyone can say, here's what happened. Here's what took place. Someone put it this way. Many have forgotten that that unofficial witness bearing used to be the chief way by which the good news went around the world. I tell you, and you believe, and receive, and tell someone else, and he tells others. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be complicated, simply bear witness. And that brings us um, last to the nature of our witness. There is a necessity placed upon us, but the nature of our witness is proclamation. The nature of our witness is proclamation. So what is the gospel? Well, as we've said, it's news, right? It's a report about things that have happened within human history. And what do you do with news? You announce it, you publicize it, you tell it to the world. We are not first explaining something. Explanation is good and it's necessary, but that's not first what we're doing. We're not first arguing for something. We're merely telling it. Jesus died and rose again. This is what happened. So to proclaim the truth is quite simply to tell the story. It's to state the facts. 
It's not first and foremost our responsibility to accuse the world or to mount sophisticated arguments against it. It is rather to tell what happened. Remember, we're witnesses. That's what a witness does. This is what happened. So what does that look like? Again, tell the story. Tell Jesus' story. As I mentioned earlier, the gospel is news or an announcement about Jesus. It's primarily about him and not about us. It's not first and foremost a message about how we can be forgiven or a message about how we can go to heaven. Now, that's certainly true. But first and foremost, the leading edge of the gospel is the story about Jesus. It's the proclamation that he died and rose again to become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a message about him. And that's what the apostles were saying. So, so allow me to demonstrate a minute, right? So we can, and it's not an entirely a negative thing, but we can make the gospel or lead with us, right? Start with ourselves. And, and it goes something like this, right? You have a problem, which is sin, and therefore you're on the road to damnation. But Jesus died to save you, and now you have the opportunity to go uh, to heaven, right? To change roads and to uh, uh, align with a different destiny. Now, again, don't mistake me. I'm not saying that's untrue or that it's even wrong, wrong way to evangelize, but simply that it's, that it's not exactly what witnessing is as we find it here defined in Acts. It's not exactly telling the story. Instead, what you find in the scriptures is another way of going about telling the gospel. So I encourage you, um, we're in Acts we're not going to be in a series in Acts, but to uh, look through the rest of Acts and see how the gospel is preached. In the mouths of the apostles, it's rather simple. They tell the story of Jesus. Uh, Greg, if you'd uh, hit the next slide. This is Acts chapter 10. Good luck reading it. This is Acts chapter 10 where um, Peter uh, evangelizes to Gentiles for the first time. And I want you to hear how he how he does that. So it's, it's a little long, but um, it, it's worth reading at length. He says, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Then he says, You yourselves know that the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all, these, of all things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. He simply tells the story, beginning with his baptism in the Jordan all the way to his ascension into heaven, and then he gives them the meaning. That's what it means to bear witness. To be a witness, rather. It's simply to tell the story. These things happened, and they have universal significance. 
So in the end, the power is in that story. The story of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That's where the power lies. It's not on us to be persuasive or even confident. It's simply to bear witness, to state the facts. And that's what, as we uh, now draw our service to a close, that's what we intend to do to rehearse and retell the good news through the bread and the cup, to remind ourselves what it happened and to remind ourselves what happened rather and what it means. So I want to invite you forward now to receive the elements, to return to your places in thanksgiving, and I'll lead us in celebration in just one moment.